Hey everybody, this is Jamin. You're listening to Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Harry Brignall. Harry, thanks for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. So we're talking about the anatomy of a research question, a question in context of one you would ask a participant. Mm-hmm. So give us a little bit of context. Tell us how you wound up in research. You know what? I went through a very sort of traditional route, but that's because I'm kind of a bit old. So in the old days, the only way to get into research was through pretty much the formal route of studying something like psychology and doing it through academia, because there was sort of in, at the end of the 90s and the early 2000s, there was no UX community. There was no sort of user research roles that you could get in industry. So yeah, I was, a, I was an academic researcher back in the day. And when we did research, we had to record the research onto VHS cassettes. So I remember setting up our first lab where we had SVHS recorders and being really, really proud of it because they were slightly higher fidelity than the regular VHS. It's quite funny to look, look back on it now. But yeah, so yeah, I've been, been in the business for quite a few years, as you can tell. So I became, I became a usability consultant because in those days there wasn't really, there wasn't a term user experience. No one, if you, if you um, go onto Google Trends and, and, and have a look at the term user experience, it wasn't really around in the early 2000s at all. Usability was a thing though. So that's kind of how I got into user research, doing a lot of lab research, a little bit of eye tracking and ethnography and that sort of thing. And then I kind of ended up going a bit design side. I think most research, most people in the UX industry sort of move around a bit. So I started out from research and then went into more design and then back into research again. And now I run a design team with a mixture of all those skills. I guess the listeners are probably most interested in is when I went to work at Spotify a few years ago and I was using, uh, I was using Lookback really intensively when I was at Spotify. I would work from home in Brighton on the South Coast. Uh, my product squads were in Stockholm, a totally different country. Uh, and the end users I was working with were in the USA. So it was just the perfect tool for that sort of thing where I could sit at home in my in my pajamas and do research and deliver the research to my team and, and still be you know near, near my family and everything. The great thing about remote research, particularly in the States, which is just so big, is that you can do one interview that, and speak to a college kid on a, like some amazing college campus. And the next one will be someone in the trailer park, the next, like eating their breakfast cereal or something. And the next one will be someone with a totally different accent, a totally different way of life. So it's, it's a really nice way and a really cheap way to be able to interview lots of different people from different walks of life in a very short span of time. So I'm laughing about the VHS comment still. The, <laughs> I did a study, this what we used to do. This, I, I started my, my career in 96. And we did a, I guess it would be equivalent to like a Netflix sort of a study where the company that commissioned it, uh, we had a bunch of VHS recorders in our players, I guess, in the back room of the focus group facility. And then they were all like wired into this television set. The participant would pretend to point to a show that was on the television set. And then we would quickly try to swap out the cords so that we could play that particular show for them. Right, yeah, Wizard was methodology, right, yeah. Yeah, it was so funny. And so, and you're, what's really interesting to me is, you know, in those days, you basically just had market research as this like broader category. User research, I guess, user research was a thing, but maybe a little bit more underground, at least from my, yeah. where I sat. But, you know, as companies created their own labs and, you know, design teams needed to have access to insights faster. It feels like there was this birth of, um, I don't want to call it a new discipline, but a new discipline, uh, which is user experience research. I mean, the amazing thing is even now though, you're, you can, you can find yourself getting a job 
in a, a reputable company as a user researcher and in that role you'll meet people who have no idea what user research is and think it's some sort of variant of market research where you do focus groups so despite how much the world has moved on the understanding of the subtleties and the different kinds of research like what market research for and what what quality of user research is for is it, it's it's not widespread and i think you have to spend quite a lot of your career just explaining to people what you do and how it how it does differ from like old-fashioned 1980s market research right yeah. yeah. So how do you how do you make those distinctions to um, the non-professional? I mean, I guess you've got attitudinal research where you're trying to talk to people about their attitudes about a thing. And I think uh, when you're doing product research, you're looking at interaction design of things. I mean, you have to observe behavior. It's all about observed behavior. And I mean, that's what Lookback is for too, right? Lookback is a tool for you to screen search so you can see people using the product you don't just sit there talking to them about what they would do you give them activities and then you watch them you quietly watch them get on with it and user behavior is far far more telling um, than the attitudinal stuff in the context of interaction design where you're trying to work out how to make the thing designed better right kind of going back to their origination mm -hmm. fighter cockpit right where it's all about streamlining the controls so that the, the pilot would, you know, have easy access to the right stuff that's important, like speed and altimeter and, and whatnot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it turns out it's much better to sit and watch them doing stuff and watch all the subtleties of their behavior than to, than to get them into a market research lab and give them all the pizza and ask them sort of how they feel about the design of the cockpits. Um, you might get some useful stuff from them. But if, you, if you're designing for behaviors, doing behavioral observation is the way to find out about it, which is kind of obvious when you put it like that. Do you see, and gosh, you know, I'm so glad that you were having this conversation because I've been struggling to be quite honest with you on how I know there's differences, like material differences, but I've been having a hard time articulating them. When you think of it like that, do you see there's, it's almost like a Venn diagram, right? So there are some interdisciplinary commonality, such as how to ask a question. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, kind of segue into that piece. What do you see as the elements of a good question? Well, you know what, I made some notes here after I saw your question earlier, and I've actually, what my answer here is going to take you a little bit off topic, but hopefully you'll like this, because you'll have, I know you're interviewing different people, and at least I have a sort of slightly different perspective here to put forward. I think it's very easy to focus in on the small details of the researchers, and researchers can feel very safe when they focus in on, on small things like the recruitment specification of the exact wording, the questions. But in my opinion, what defines good research, and it then, and then it sort of cascades into the questions, is the overarching research re objectives. Um, so, you know, what are you doing the research for in the first place? And if you don't get that right, the questions are uh, inconsequential. <laughs> and if you do get it right, the questions become much easier to write anyway. So, so what do I mean by that? I mean, I, basically, it's, it's very common, particularly when you've got a new job or if you're a junior researcher, to have someone come along and... Um, for example, a product manager, a product owner, or someone in management to try and tell you the objectives in advance of what you should be doing your research on. Uh, and managers tend to be very feature focused. So they're probably going to be very specific and have a very narrow brief about the one thing that they care about, about at that point in time. For example, uh, imagine you're a researcher and you've got a new job and your team to joining has never done any user research. And your manager or the product owner or whatever comes along and says, I want you to do some research on this particular dashboard that we're building at the moment. And this dashboard is used by this one particular user type. Let's say you've got six user types and it's used by one of them. Um, so if you go and do that research, you'll probably make that person happy. 
but you'll still be kind of in the dark about the big picture. So, you know, what about the other five user types that we talked about there? What about the broader user needs? You know, what what are the most worrying or least understood things about the problems that your product is trying to solve for users? Uh, and besides, often these sort of senior manager type people, they don't really know what good user research is anyway. So really, like I was saying earlier, it's really a lot of the job of a researcher is to teach the people around them how they can be engaged with in a constructive way so they don't get approached with very tightly defined research questions that are over, overly scoped, basically. So I've got a metaphor here. <laughs> if, you, if you think of your problem space as, as being like a dark cave, user research is a bit like a flashlight that shines a beam into the cave so you can see what's going on. And the first time, if you, if you did go climbing or go exploring and find a big dark cave, the first thing you're going to want to do is shine your torch, shine your flashlight around the cave to try and work out what's in there. You probably do it quite quickly, right? Just to make sure that you're safe. And there's no big surprises like a bear or something. And then once you've done that, then you might have a more focused beam and shine it at something else, right? You might feel like, okay, we've covered that off. We've done our first pass. Now we can focus in on that really exciting structure over there, the stalagmites and stalactites or something like that, where you'd really point the beam there and get really interested and focused on it. So I guess a bit of a tenuous uh, metaphor there, but I think it's really, really important to always start broad. Otherwise, you can end up getting really deep into something and missing the point somehow. Because, uh, you know, human human life is multi-layered and it's always good to start out on the broadest possible layer and then zoom in gradually rather than zoom in first and kind of miss out on some big thing that you should be working on. That's the best metaphor I've ever heard, by the way, <laughs> uh, for research. I mean, that's like so on point because you could miss, by starting narrow, you could miss the most important thing that could kill you at a product level. And... By starting broad, you know, you're you're able to get rid of those biases that, you know, we naturally bring into our conversations. Um, yeah, I mean, product teams are always going to care greatly about the thing that they're currently working on. And there'll probably be some unsexy thing that's really broken that actually really matters to users, like the way in which... Like if you open any UX textbook, you you'd find you'd read you'd read about the types types of research. So you'd probably read that there are two types of research. You've got generative research and evaluative research. Um, generative is where you sort of want to discover user needs. It's before you've got a product, or when you're looking at sort of the big sort of yeah sort of discovery phase stuff. And evaluative is when you've got a design and you want users to evaluate it. But I think one of my points is that I think you should always try to merge the two types a little bit. So you're not always doing all of one or all of, all of another, and you don't phase it out too much. So, um, you know, for example, if you're doing evaluative research, say you do have a design of a thing and you're taking it into a core research session, a look back or whatever, it's good to start out by doing some broad discussion about their lives, the problem that you're trying to solve for them, how it might fit into it, uh, and just sort of shoot the shit a bit, basically, and just talk to them in a really broad way. Um, and then equally, when you're doing the generative research, where that's kind of the whole point of it, do let them show you the competitive products they use. Do let them get into the interface and show you the things that annoy them and, that, and sort of pogo between those two worlds and just let the conversation shift naturally. You'll learn things that you wouldn't have otherwise found out. So I think that, yeah, the thing about research is that there are other layers of sort of the person's life or other layers of context that you can really, really miss out on. And if you're really thinking about how to ask that perfect question, it may be that actually asking a load of fumblingly badly worded questions, but in a really relaxed environment can get you the answers you want. 
Uh, I guess that's kind of my point, actually. It makes a lot of. I mean, that's that's that makes a lot of sense, especially given the metaphor that we that we started with. When when you think about the common mistakes that researchers make, if you were to try to condense, I know we all make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. Every time I listen to one of my interviews, by the way, I'm like, gosh darn it. But anyway, what do you see as some of the more common interview mistakes? I think what you can often do when you go into an interview is you'll have an interview script that you put together and then some stakeholders will have come along and gone, can you also, also ask these things too? So you'll have, you'll have a load of tasks and suddenly the amount of tasks you want to give them too many to fit in the time and then a load of questions and they're too many and then you'll get some spurious nonsense that'll come in from someone and you go, well, I might as well put it in there to avoid upsetting them. And then you'll have this script with just tons of stuff that you just don't have time to cover. And I think a really common mistake is to cut users off and keep hurrying them up to try and get it all in. And obviously it's not really an interview then. You're basically, uh, and in fact, if you look in, in Zencaster here, we've got we've got two audio tracks. Like there's a track with me talking and you can see the waveform and there's a track with you talking. And generally it, what you should have is a situation where the user is talking the most and the track with the interviewer should be relatively quiet most of the time, just kind of encouraging them and helping them. But if you do an interview where the interviewer is talking all the way through, all you've learned is, more about the interview, interviewer's voice, which is not very little. Um, so you have to give them the time to talk. And uh, having a very loose and open interview script is good. A, a booking in slots that are too long. So, for example, if you book a bunch of 90-minute interviews and know that most of them will only take an hour, then you'll never need to rush anyone. Um, obviously, you'll pay a bit more and you'll get fewer interviews done in a day. But that, that lack of rushing means that you'll just get more of a natural conversation with them. Um, I remember in one agency I worked at, we had this sort of running joke that you'd always learn the single most important insight from a participant after the session ends on their way out of the building. And uh, it's weird how often that came true. Uh, like I once did some research for a finance company who were building a retirement tool for financial advisors. And um, I think we'd done something like 20 hours of interviews. We were all exhausted. And one of the participants on their way out went, oh, yeah, but financial advisors would never use this tool anyway. And um, when we asked them about it, it turned out that most of the people we recruited were all too senior and wouldn't actually use the software that we were designing at all. They'd just get someone else to do it in their team. And we were trying to design the product for the users. They weren't the users. They were kind of a different kind of stakeholder entirely. So um, we'd failed to go broad first. We didn't really understand the organizations that we were trying to sell this product to. We didn't understand who was going to use it. We basically had to start again. Um, but in a, but in, in a way, it was good. That person had the opportunity to have that little conversation with us, and it changed the direction. And maybe we did waste a couple of weeks, but it, it allowed us to end up with a, a useful thing and knowing who it was for and selling it to the right people. All of that cascaded from having the space to have that conversation in the first place. Oh, my God. Yes, that is so true. The post-recording phase, right? All yeah. of a sudden, truth comes out. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. So, uh, common mistakes. What do you see as uh, common mistakes, whether it's with colleagues or peers, or you know, as we've been in the industry doing research for more than a little while? Uh, what do you see as sort of the the common pitfalls uh, in in asking a question? I think just zeroing in. I mean, the kind of what I'm saying all the way through is zeroing in into too specifically on very specific questions, asking closed questions when you could be asking open questions. I mean, closed questions are okay, um, but they, you shouldn't just ask people a, a series of closed questions with nothing else because then you could just do a survey or something if you're going to be like that. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're going to do interviews, the, the beauty of an interview is the richness of insight that you can get. And you want the whole point of research is to be surprised and to have your mind changed about something. So you have to structure the interview in a way that allows that to happen. You can't ask people a load of minute questions that way you've sort of atomized everything down so small that, um, that you're really guiding them through a series of thoughts. I mean, uh, particularly when you're doing when you're doing qualitative research and people are trying out a product, if you instead of giving them one open-ended task like try this out and see what you think, if you give them a dozen very small things and each of those things corresponds with one of the features, you're basically telling them what to do. And if you tell them what to do, you're, you're guiding them through the interface. It's a bit like uh, sort of Socratic questioning where you're you're educating them and guiding them through a process by asking a series of highly structured interview questions where each task corresponds with an extra bit of the interface. So it's much better not to really ask them very much at all and ask them to muddle through of their own accord, you know. Have a look at this product, see what you think. And they'll have a go and you're going, oh, you'd like to look at that, why don't you try it and see, you know, try it and see and let them kind of make their own way through. It's um, so hard. It's so hard. Yeah, I know, I know. It's very easy to sort of sit here and talk about how, how you ought to do research. But once you're, once you're in the research session, it all sort of changes particularly when you've got lots of people watching. Yeah, and you want the you want that participant to be feel successful, right? So yeah. uh, there's this like natural human inclination to want to help them, to try and aid them in their letting them fail is that's a really good point. Yeah. Uh, is uh, is that horrible awkwardness and the really sort of pregnant pauses you get where someone is totally struggling with the interface and they have no idea what to do next. And what you really want, your natural inclination is to help them or to give them a tiny little tip as to what to do next. But seeing someone fail completely, give up, uh, is absolutely vital feedback for everyone involved in the product. And it's better to let them fail completely and say, that's it, I would give up at this point. You can take a note and go, like, basically task failed or whatever. Uh, that, uh, after you've got that data point there, you can then step in and say, right, okay, in that case, I'll explain to you X, Y, and Z. And you can kind of continue the interview, but um, you know, if they can't use the product, if it's signing up for a new credit card and they couldn't complete the sign-up process, for example, everything that happens sub subsequent in the interview is kind of a moot point, really. It's like you've got to go and fix that one thing. That's, that's, that's such an important point that is so easily easily missed. You know, that could be the most important point. It could happen in the first five minutes of the interview. You've still got 55 minutes left, so you feel obligated to kind of like push through. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, you know, and you don't want to make them feel sad. You don't want to end the interview like after ten minutes, going, "We're all done here." <laughs> especially for, <laughs> especially for the client. Yeah, you have it. Yeah, exactly. They're paying for it as well, so you do have a you have a you have a duty to soldier on through the interview for everyone's sake. But when it comes to the actual research findings, is if they fail the task, if it's a, a big long task and they fail it near the beginning, everything else they say thereafter, after you've given them some guidance, it, it, like the guidance that you give them as the researcher. You, you're, you won't be there in real life for the hundreds of thousands of users that are using that product. The product has to stand on its own two feet. And if it can't do, then that is absolutely the most vital feedback that uh, any user, uh, everyone in the product team needs to know. Do, do you have a favorite bad question that you've, <laughs> you've seen maybe recently? Um, I don't know. I, I remember once doing some research and we had the stakeholders in the room and one of the stakeholders would wrap his fingers on the table like this when the user didn't answer the question. <laughs> um, 
Um, yeah, it was it was like a we were doing some research from eye tracking companies, so we couldn't stream it because the tech it was like a standalone piece of tech that was really that, that you kind of had to be in the room to see working. Um, so uh, that that didn't go. It's basically sometimes yeah, the, you need to keep the stakeholders far away sometimes, and um, I often find that I I know some researchers like like to have like um, a chat window open and like to let people ask them questions during the research. I absolutely will not abide that as the researcher. They can all get lost. If they can write notes and stuff, and I'll talk to them afterwards. But having that extra channel of input while you're trying to run an interview is just sort of mind-meltingly annoying. You'll appreciate this, considering I think we started around the same time, the note under the door. (laughs) (laughs) As as the manager now, I sometimes have to go into the research room having like maybe the stream's broken or, or some weird things happen where we, you know, can't hear the audio or something. Um, sometimes that happens on old fashioned labs. So I have to, I have to go in there and go, uh, like kind of pretend that I'm not watching it live. <laughs> and cool. interrupt and go, oh, there's, uh, I've heard there's some technology issues in the building. Can we try rebooting your router or some nonsense like that? Um, but yeah, it's, it's can be quite awkward, particularly if the, if the user, some, if, yeah, the viewing room door is left o- open when the, the participant comes in and they see a massive like audience of people all sitting there bolt upright with clipboards. It, it doesn't really get you off to a good start. <laughs> <laughs> Harry, so tell me about your, your current business. Um, so let's see, I've actually got a few things that I do at the moment. I think probably the thing that your, um, your listeners would find most interesting is my work on dark patterns. Um, so I, I basically invented dark patterns. Well, no, that's not all the right word. I didn't invent them. I discovered them and gave them a name sort of in 2010. And it was, so I set up this website, darkpatterns.org, and it, it's sort of become, it become a bit of a meme. Like everyone uses that term now when they talk about deceptive interfaces and deceptive design practices. For quite a few years, I thought it was just a kind of hobby thing. I'd go and do talks on it and um, I'd run the website and the Twitter feed a bit. And I thought that was that. But just recently, last year, I've started providing expert witness services, which is fascinating. So it's the intersection between sort of psychology, UX design, and the law. Um, so uh, if someone's doing a big class action lawsuit and they need a, an expert to sort of analyze and describe the nature of the, the deceptive interface, I, I would get hired to go and write a report and then give a deposition. So... Uh, trick questions, sneak into basket, roach motel, privacy, right? So you've the website is fascinating. I cannot wait to dive in. Yeah, yeah. I'm, so I'm going to be doing a little bit of user research. I'm finding, I'm trying looking for a couple of uh, agencies to partner with, actually. But I'm going to be doing some research looking at how you sort of looking closely at how dark patterns can work. So, for example, how you can hide something in plain sight in the user interface that, and you can design it in such a way that users don't notice it because it's on the page, it sort of makes it legal. Um, so one of, the, one of the most sort of famous examples of that was the uh, Ryanair. I don't know if you've heard, heard I'll, I'll describe the example. So on, on Ryanair, which is a, a low-cost airline in Europe, you could go into the checkout as you're buying your tickets. It would ask you a question like, oh yeah, what is your country of residence? And if you answer the question directly, it would buy insurance because somewhere around it, it said like selecting a country of residence will cause you to buy insurance. And, and if you didn't want it, you had to go into the drop down and pick uh, some, some sort of between Lithuania and Latvia, it said, please don't insure me. And you'd have to pick that option in order to opt out. 
So they, they came up with this design of hiding the real nature of the question in plain sight on the page. It was written right there, but just the way people scan read, they just scan read right past it and don't, uh, and, uh, and don't see. So I'm really interested in doing a bit of user research or a few different bits of user research on getting really under the skin of how dot patterns actually work and the psychology of them. That is so Ryanair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. It's like, it's like it's such a cultural fit for yeah. that, for that brand. That's hilarious. It's hilarious and terrifying at so many levels. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. If somebody wants to get in contact with you, how would they do that? Well, you could Google me. Um, I'm, uh, if you go to my sort of personal domain, Brignall.com, um, you'll see various ways of contacting me and the various different things that I do. And I would welcome anyone to get in touch. I'm, I'm quite active on Twitter, actually. So if anyone sort of tweeted me or DM'd me, I'd probably talk talk to them at length if they wanted to. Yeah. My guest today has been Harry Brignall. Harry, thank you so much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast. My pleasure. Everyone else, please take time, screen capture, share this on social media. Really appreciate it. Love it if you would tag Harry and myself. We would enjoy a Twitter fest. Have a great rest of your day.